those are the two out of the four that I'd really recommend. Um, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about the uniqueness of, of college and the unique sexual world that you live in on a college campus in 2022. There are 2,500 18 to 22 year olds that all live within a mile of each other. Okay, just think about that. You interact with each other in small and big ways. You pass by one another. You see each other in class. You see each other here. You, you see each other in the gym. And, and what that does is it comes with this cultural, I would say this cultural um, demand or expectation that you are to constantly think about your body and your sexuality. You're forced to present yourself and your appearance to dozens of people every day. And you're surrounded by thousands of people who do the exact same thing. And so baked into the system of a college campus is obsession with our body and our sexuality. And it leads to comparison, it leads to pride, it leads to insecurity. On top of that, you spend an average of four to six hours a day on social media, which does several things. And one of which is it forces you to constantly think about your appearance and your image and your presentation to others. And it allows you to see and judge hundreds of people in their appearances. And did I mention your age? You're 18 to 22. Most of you men and women are in this stage of life where you desire sexual connection. You desire emotional connection. And you think about this topic a lot. Um, you're, there, there is always potential, even as you enter into this room, that there's going to be something that sparks that you're always, that you're, there's always potential for some sort of sexual or romantic interest as you walk past and, and commune with 2,500 people within the square mile. Your body and your sexuality are on your mind a lot. Um, and, the, and the unfortunate thing is that the church, um, we don't really speak much about it. So as I was thinking about this, I'm like, okay, I'm going to take a whole night and um, take your questions, maybe, maybe say some things that... Um, are a comfort to you. That's my, that's my real hope. Um, I, what I know is that many people in this room have sexual scars and shame. And my hope is that you, you receive just this, this balm of the gospel that meets you in that place um, with this promise of redemption and love. Um, as we do think through this, uh, we're going to be doing so in three points. Um, the first is the truth of Freud. Um, which is we'll look at this cultural analysis of, of where we're at and then the truth of God and then applying that truth. Um, that's how I'm going to parse this out. So the truth of Freud. Um, what do I mean by this? I am no philosopher. Um, I have taken one philosophy class um, in seminary, um, unfortunately, just one. Um, but I have been influenced by a, a several uh, deep, deep thinkers, um, Charles Taylor, and, and then most recently um, this work by Carl Truman. Um, and they, they spend a lot of time expanding on the influence that um, Sigmund Freud has um, had in our society. Um, he is one of two uh, real uh, cultural uh, shakers and, and disciplers, I would say, um, early in the 20th century, late in the 19th century. They piggyback on the work of others like Rousseau and David Hume. If you're a philosopher, um, you, you know these names. Um, uh, piggybacking on this idea that the goal the purpose of human existence was to be happy. And what Freud did was then said, um, okay, well, um, humanity's happiest moments are during sex. So the purpose of life, the main content of the good life is personal sexual fulfillment. Um, this was about a, just a hundred years ago. And, it, and he even went a step further uh, to say that to be human was to be one who was sexually fulfilled. 
And, and, and what happened was our sexuality became so intertwined with our identity that to separate the two now seems foreign. Because, uh, to, uh, because of Freud, um, because of, of these thinkers that he uh, piggybacked off of, sex became primarily about um, one's personal pleasure. What can I get from this experience? And there's a lot of interesting theory and research that he's done, but he really led the charge to this sexual revolution that we, we find ourselves in 60 years later. Um, it was really him alongside the invention of birth control in the 1950s, which really took the, the fear of getting pregnant um, out of the picture. It was these two things mixed with a variety of things that really ramped up the sexual atmosphere. Um, and to understand the way that Freud thinks, you have to think of, he, he understands the, the body in three, the mind in three components. Um, there is what he described as the id, which is the desires, the wants, um, the expectations, uh, what we're driven toward, what we want, our impulses. Um, then there's the superego, he describes it as, which is the cultural way in which they're trying to have us conform. How they want, uh, how culture shapes uh, societies and families and individuals. And then sitting between these two is the ego that's trying to play by the tension and uh, help, help the desires fit into the culture and push back against the culture when the desires need more room. And so, uh, he of course attacks in, in his uh, maybe most prominent essay, any form of superego, any sort of cultural custom that prohibits man and woman from their desired sexual experience. And now we're just a few generations removed from Freud and his thinking, and we all are, are a bunch of Freudian disciples, um, myself included. Who, who far too often trust our desires and look suspiciously at anyone, um, at any dogma, anything that would impose on us any sort of sexual standard, because to experience the good life we believe is to be sexually free. So you add, you add his work to Rene Descartes, who has created this dualistic mentality where there are really two main parts of us. There's this physical, sexual part of our body, and then there's this emotional or mental part of our body. And these things can be separated. Um, there's a book I refer to in, in, uh, in, the, in the, the bulletin called Sex and the Soul, written by Donna Fridas. And she uh, does extensive research over, over 3,000 college students, um, helping, under, helping her understand uh, the way that we think about sexuality. And she um, has really concluded that we've been tricked into thinking relationships can be sexual and physical while disconnected from any sort of emotional or mental place. Um, this, is, this is, she says, is the most pervasive myth on the college campus, and it has really um, risen the, the life of casual sex. That sex isn't do, we, we believe, we falsely believe that sex isn't doing anything to our heart not doing anything to our mind. It's not doing anything to our emotion. It can purely be recreational and enjoyed from any hint of love or commitment, as long as there's consent. In, in, this, in, in her book, Love Thy Body, um, there's an interview of a girl uh, by the name of Alicia, and she says this. She says, hookups are very scripted. In the process, you learn to turn everything off except for your body and make yourself emotionally invulnerable. What happens is what matters is body first, personality second. Thinking like Rene Descartes um, is a real assault on the goodness of our body. So you take these two philosophers and you, you add in a whole other baggage of stuff. I mean, you think about 
the way that culture uh, has has depicts sex in movies and in songs and in shows. I mean, is there a single movie that comes to mind that depicts a solid marriage and depicts it in a way that makes it look beautiful where there's no affair? Is there a single movie or show that depicts a dating couple who wait to live, sleep, and have sex together until marriage? Is there any one? Can you think of one? I mean, if you look at the list of the top 50 songs, um, every one of them, just about every one of them talks about love, breakup, romance, heartbreak, and casual sex. Our favorite songs belittle and demean women and treat them and their bodies as objects for one's personal sexual gain. We're flippant. We're explicit. Are there any famous celebrities that you look up to that have never been divorced? Is there any celebrity that's been happily married and you know nothing of their marriage because it's quiet and happy and they're content? This is the world. These are the people that we look to and they disciple you, whether you know that or not. I mean, I'd be remiss to not discuss pornography here. And we've been heavily discipled by pornography, and this could be a whole talk in and of itself. But, but pornography is so dangerous and destructive. But it makes so much sense. I mean, never at a time... I mean, you can ask any psychologist these things, and it's just this recipe for disaster. Never in your life again, I hope, will you ever be so stressed with constant demands flowing and hanging over your head. So there's this whole world of stress that you live in. When you go into the workforce, you're not going to have some a homework due every night and stressed out out of your mind and living on four hours of sleep. Um, that's a good thing. You should celebrate that. Um, never in your life has there ever been so much futility. And by futility, I mean... This, this inability to see any meaning or purpose in what you're doing. You know, you go into the workforce and at least you can see some sense of how I'm contributing relationally to others or how I'm contributing to the good, the common good of the world. But as a student, man, you're so disconnected from seeing any good. What am I doing? I'm just here. I'm kind of waiting to make purpose. So you live with so much stress. You live with so much futility. And then there's constant alluring lust that's just grabbing your attention. And you're also really angry. And so you throw anger into the, into the, the melting pot here. And you're these pissed off people who think your teachers are treating you unfair. And your friends don't want to hang out with you. And your boyfriend and your girlfriend have broken up with you. And you're, you're angry. Or you have unresolved anger from your home. And then you add into these, to, to this mix this addictive behavior of this disassociation where it's better for you to enter into a virtual world than stay in the physical world of which you're a part of. And so you enter into this virtual world. You disassociate from the pain. You disassociate from what's real and physical and true. And you throw all these things together. And then you throw that lustful, stressed out, futile, angry person in a room by themselves with constant access to whatever pornography they want. And what the church has said to you is, don't do it. But we do. Which sends us further into the dark. And the addiction overwhelms you and shames story engulfs your identity. I'm just a piece of crap. Who would want me? You begin to believe there's no sexual hope for you. So you resign. You stop moving towards potential boyfriends or girlfriends. And you increase time in your virtual world. And you become less human. You become less sexual. You become discipled by the internet which teaches you that sex can happen outside of marriage and it can happen any way you want it without a single ounce of work. And day by day, you're destroyed. 
First John chapter two says all that's in the world. And John goes on to say this, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye and the pride of life, these things that look good, that's what the world is made of. And it's not from the father in heaven, but it's from the world. And the world's passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God will abide forever. Our culture significantly shapes how you walked into this room thinking about sex. Um, I heard this this question posed, and I thought it was really insightful. Um, I want you to think about um, what comes to mind, and I know your age, I know your stage of life, um, but hang with me. Um, But think about what images, what words, what associations come to mind when I say these words, okay? And don't worry, this isn't like a welcome to RUF, share this with your neighbor, introduce yourself, and share your answer. Um, What comes to mind when you think of this? Good sex. What comes to mind? Now, I want you to think for a a second and and see what comes to mind. What, What images, what association, what... What, what words come to mind when I say the words married sex? And what I'm going to try to do tonight is to convince you that married sex between one male and one female is the good sex. And that's such an uphill battle because my guess is that you thought of good sex as surprising and sexy and free and casual, no strings attached. It's performative. It's like a fun game. You know, if you do well, you'll still be together. But if you don't and something went terribly, maybe you'll never see him again. It's so exciting. It's fun. It's adventurous. It's always new. It derives its thrill from the unknown. I can't wait to go watch a movie with my girlfriend. There's a thrill in it. Whereas married sex, maybe first is like, ooh, gross, that's my parents. Don't talk about that. Um, But maybe you're able to get past that initial thought and you thought of married sex as boring routine, infrequent, constrained. But listen to what Lauren Winter says in her book. She says, our popular culture has enshrined an image of what good sex is. Good sex is the sex with all those positive adjectives that we associate with premarital sex. It's fun, it's new, it's exciting. Where marital sex is the opposite. The marital sex is the good sex precisely because it's not new. It's not constantly unknown. It's not performative. There's no worry of your partner being there or not being there, depending on how it went. And it's that very ordinariness and certainty that opens up a space for sex to be more than just two people getting their physical needs met on a random evening. Our culture is significantly discipling you about how to think how to dream about sex. It's all changing so fast and we're caught in the middle of this revolution. Um, My pastor pointed out a year ago, um, I think just this great depiction of how fast this is going and where we've come from just a few generations ago. He said 60 years ago, Rolling Stones performed on the Ed Sullivan show and they had to change the lyrics of let's spend the night together to let's spend some time together. Right? So that's 60 years ago. To, to, to say, let's spend the night together is too explicit. Whereas now Miley Cyrus simul- simulates sex with a microphone on stage at a popular music concert. I mean, it's crazy. It's a big shift. 
I would say something's gone tremendously wrong with our sexual desire. I would say that we're a sexually starved people looking to all the wrong things for our answers. Uh, C.S. Lewis gives this really um, funny analogy. He says, you know, you, he says, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act, that is, to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now, suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a steak or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone terribly wrong with their appetite for food? And what some people might see as freedom and liberation because they're discipled by Freud, I see it as a world being led astray, starving for the real stuff, uncertain where to find it. Which leads me to my second point, the truth of God. Um, if you've been in the church for any period of time, um, you, know, you know what I'm going to say. Most, most people, whether you're a Christian or not Christian, are, are at least somewhat familiar with um, a traditional historic stance and sexuality that sex is to be between one male and one female in the union of marriage. That's it. Um, but here, here's the thing. For the next eight minutes, I want to try to convince you of why that biblical sex ethic is best. Um, in, in early, in early uh, first century Rome, um, men really dominated society. Um, they had their way with women. You could go uh, look at the art of that time, you could understand that there were bathhouses. I mean, it was a very sexually explo exploitive and, and just provocative time. Um, and men would commonly have sex with whatever women they want to because they ruled the day. And to think about just the countercultural beauty of Paul entering in and speaking in into this time, here's what he says. He reinforces the sexual ethic that goes back to the Garden of Eden, this one male, one female sex in the union of marriage that I, I talked about last week, he goes back to the Garden of Eden and he tells these authoritative domineering men to stop uh, what they're doing, to sacrificially live and give their heart and their body and their life to one woman. It's so countercultural. We want to read that today and be like, oh, these, you know, this, this, this Bible, man, it's so restrictive and terrible for society. This thing changed the outlook and the entire history of the world. He says, stop using these women. Leave them alone. Do not sleep with whoever you want. Give your body to one woman. She's your wife. Two shall become one. In a recent interview with uh, Tim and Kathy Keller, they said that the Christian sex ethic should not be something we hide from, but should be one of our greatest apologetics. In a disillusioned world where we live without limits and use others for our own pleasure, the Christian sex ethic is countercultural. It was countercultural in Rome 2,000 years ago, and it is today. One man, one woman that involves sacrifice and commitment. The Christian sex ethic understands love as more than a feeling. It's an active choice to value your spouse more than yourself, to give of yourself to one another. The Christian sex ethic is the most humanizing option available. But here's the thing, generally when sex is discussed in the church, it's done by this proclamation of avoidance. Do not be sexually immoral, immoral we say. That's the basic message. And what I, I don't know about you, but what I've noticed over the last couple decades is that message isn't working. 
It's not leading to much behavioral change. It's not competing with the narrative and the time spent being discipled by culture. You know, I could read to you tonight, I could read 1 Corinthians 6 and tell you, you know, the neither the, the sexually immoral and all these other people won't inherit the kingdom of God. And you could be like, okay, great. And for a while, maybe you'll modify behavior out of fear. But what, what I really think is that doesn't really do anything. It doesn't really change your heart. That change doesn't last very long. Because what I know about our heart is our heart is what drives our whole life. And our heart uh, drives towards something beautiful. It leads us towards something beautiful. Avoid sexual morality is not driving our heart towards something. It's stomping on something else. So we need a bigger picture of sexuality. We need to ask questions like, what are our bodies? Why do I have a body? What is sex? Is it good? How does it affect me? What's its purpose? These are the bigger questions. Um, you know, there's a, a, a well-known analogy of, of if I were to uh, go, go buy a nice Rolex watch or something nice and I were to go home and I were to hammer a nail into the wall with a Rolex watch and I were to go back to the store and be like, hey, it didn't work, it broke. Um, they would then probably ask me a series of questions. Well, what, how did it shatter? What are, you, what are you doing with it? Well, I was hammering. So the whole point of this illustration is to show that everything has a purpose. Um, I'm not supposed to hammer with a watch. That's not the intention. That's not why it's created. It's created to help me show and tell the time. In the same way, we have to know what our bodies are for. And so let's, let's answer this. Um, and the first way I want to answer this is just to tell you that, that the Christ, historic Christian theology is not Gnostic. And what I mean by that is that it teaches, what Gnosticism teaches is that the soul is all that matters and the body just kind of gets in the way. Christian theology teaches that God created male and female with sexual anatomy, and it was good. The body is a good thing. Um, this is where our story begins. And this might seem obvious, um, but I'm convinced that for most Christians, we understand our bodies as primarily problem causers. But the Bible says that a penis and a vagina and breasts are good. They're made by a beautiful God. But sadly, they're mainly understood as these sources of shame and embarrassment. We don't quite know what to do with it, so we, we poke fun at it and we, we use them in derogatory ways. We kind of curse our bodies. But they're good and they ought to be blessed. Um, I had a, a pastor tell a story about the time his daughter had her first period. Um, for, for many women, this can create a lot of confusion, a lot of shame. It's one of those things that they're not quite sure how to think about, and it resides in darkness. And so this pastor and his wife took their daughter out to dinner to celebrate. She's becoming a woman. What an important moment for this girl. And in that moment, her body was blessed. But the sad reality is that most of us go through life aware of the changes in our body, but without anyone to shape and speak into what's happening. So we become afraid of it. We become ashamed of it. We, stay, we keep it in the dark. But the body is good. It's not to be feared. It's not to be kept in the dark. I mean, think about our Christian theology. I mean, I love, listen to this Anglican theologian who says it this way. The concept of the body forms the keystone of Christian theology. It is from the body of sin and death that we are delivered. It's through the body of Christ on the cross that we are saved. It's into his body, the church, that we are incorporated. It is by his body in the Eucharist that the community is sustained. 
It is in our body that its new life is to be manifested where the Holy Spirit dwells in his temple. It is to a resurrection of this body in the likeness of a glorious body that we are destined. It's all about the body, yet we hate our bodies. Paul says in Ephesians 5, no one ought to hate his body, but nourish and cherish it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. We too easily give away our bodies, losing sight of their purpose, or we struggle with sin and our bodies become these deep source of shame instead of blessing. So our bodies are good, but they're also broken. And we have to hold on to this tension that our, that our bodies are good, but they're existing in this broken and sinful world. Our bodies are the sites of longings and temptations and desires that lead us astray. You know, Paul can say with, with one verse to nourish and care for our body, while the next verse he says, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? He can hold these things in tension. I think what he's getting to is that, in other words, we are a body, but we are more than a body. The Christian claim is that I am embodied and it is good, but I am more than a body. Whereas your, this campus your phones, your, your, your culture, your peers, they want you to think that you are nothing more than your body. But you are. So you may ask or maybe subconsciously desire your friends or your boyfriend or girlfriend to answer this question. Hey, do you think I look pretty? And we answer yes to that, obviously. Yes, you look pretty. But it's not a good question because that question is really this hey, my worth and identity is so wrapped up in my body and my sexual appearance, therefore I need to know, do you approve of my body? In other words, do you approve of me? This question exposes how we seek validation from our body, that we think of ourselves as nothing more than our body and our appearance. But God declares your body is good and that you are more than a body. So our bodies are good, but we're also not to be enslaved to them. So what are our bodies for? What about sex? Why do we have sexual anatomy? Why is it our sexual anatomy and how is it designed to function? Because God instituted marriage, as I said last week, and in marriage, he gave this gift of sex. And sex is for two primary reasons. First is for childbearing. You need sperm and an egg to make a baby. And second, sex is where two become one. And that depicts this emotional and the spiritual oneness, but it also depicts male and female sexual oneness. In sexual intercourse, it is impossible to tell where one person ends and another begins. And that's the way that God designed it, and it's good. It's spiritual and it's physical oneness, which is why it's such a big deal. The Christian teaching is that our bodies have a designer and every component of our our body has an intended purpose. You know, if you believe that God created your body, then you must ask, what for? Um, If you believe in God, you do not have the freedom to figure out the purpose of that creation on your own, for it's been revealed. It's for one male, one female in marriage to procreate, to multiply the earth with more image bearers 
and to experience spiritual and physical oneness. And it's a great mystery. And as I said last week, I'm telling you, it refers to Christ and his church who bears many sons and daughters of God and who is both spiritually united to us and also took on flesh and is united to us in his body. We have spiritual and we have physical oneness with Christ. It's a great mystery. So it's the truth of God. So this truth applied. Um, a few thoughts here and then I'll take questions. So you want to know how this is usually applied. Um, how, how this is usually applied is with, with an addition of strict law. And with that law comes very little grace. You know, there is an entire purity movement driven mainly by guilt and fear to stay celibate. But here's what I, what I know about humans. Um, I don't know about you, but you can draw us humans some boundaries and we will figure out a way to cross them. You can make for us humans a law and we will figure out a way to break it. And so naturally what happens is we've broken the law, we've crossed the boundary. We believe there's no grace for us. We then stay silent and in the dark and this creates this narrative of shame. In other words, if you don't believe that there's redeeming love and grace for you in all of your sexual behavior, if you don't believe that there's redemption and love for you at the cross, you won't run to it in your failure and in your shame. But instead, you're going to find relief and redemption right back in the same behavior that, that made you ashamed, sending you further into the darkness. The Proverbs depict this as a, a dog who vomits and eats his own vomit. This is what we do. It's the only recipe. It's the only way I can find relief. I feel so ashamed. The cross seems to be no respite for me, crazy sinner. So I'm going to go right back to the behavior that made me ashamed. I'm certain there's so much sexual shame in this room right now. And I, and I want you to know, in all seriousness, I knew that, I anticipated that, and I, I probably prepared a little more tonight than I ever have. Um, and I don't want you to be anxious. I'm not here to, like, come at you. Um, I see this room as, of, 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 people, of, of people full of brokenness, and I'm not here to poke at your wounds. I'm here to ask God to bandage them up. I know there are terrible things that have been done to some of you, and there are regrettable things that some of you have done. There are thoughts, feelings, attractions, and behaviors that, if exposed, would create so much fear and anxiety. You know, it's, it's weird, right? Like, in this room, there are, there are both... There are both of these types of people, there are people who are so ashamed of their sexual promiscuity, while at the same time, there are, so, there are people so afraid that they've done nothing sexually that if that were to be exposed, maybe to another group of people, there would be so much shame from that. And so the first truth to apply is that God created your body and it is good. It is broken and it is scarred, but he is not ashamed of your body. He is not put off by your sexuality. If Psalm 139 says that he has been with you and as you have made your bed and shield, he was there. He is a God who loves and redeems and blesses our bodies. And so the invitation always is to come and to confess that you may find healing. 
Second, how do we apply this truth? What this exposes to us, and as Lauren Winter spent, spent a whole chapter um, detailing in her book, um, our sexuality and our sexual um, choices, um, they are direct application to how we are to love our neighbor. I don't know about you, but in my own story, the more kind of sexual bondage I feel, the more I'm just kind of obsessed with myself and the less I'm able actually to love my neighbors around me. So there's direct application to your sexual story and, your, and how, how you're doing. The wholeness, the, the physical, the, the mental, the emotional wholeness of your sexuality and how that's leading you out into mission. But she goes on to say that um, the, the beauty of, of marriage and family is that family can be such a witness. So can single people. We're talking about singleness next week. But particularly, she was referring to marriage, can be such a witness to, to the neighborhood and the neighborhood to society and their communities and so on. But know what destroys a marriage? Sexual brokenness. Know what makes a marriage blossom? Sexual oneness. So the, there's just this direct application and correlation between where you're at in your journey towards wholeness and redemption and how you're loving your neighbor. The third way we can apply, and I, and I want to get real practical here, how can we apply some of this truth? You know what? I'm, I'm a little bit worried about the direction of uh, social media and just the phones and where it's taking us into this whole disembodied world. You are bodies. You are meant for relationship with other bodies. Might I suggest a few fewer DMs and a few more walking towards someone and introducing yourself and getting to know them and going to lunch and maybe coffee and maybe going on a date. We are bodied people. I mean this seriously. I, mean, I, know, I know like, yeah. Where the world of the phone takes you is into this disembodied, disconnected reality that is not good for your soul. Um, what I see is people far too comfortable with Tinder and all these different things and have lost the ability to actually talk to someone else. And it worries me a little bit. My invitation to you is be rejected five times. I would want you to ask someone on a date five times and be rejected five times. Because that rejection is not something to fear. It's something that changes and it helps you. I know, that's scary. Um, you know, my, my story um, of, with sex is, is littered with shame, insecurity, but also it's, it's full of a marriage, full of joy and oneness. Now, I was introduced to pornography in seventh grade. Um, I began sexually acting out in eighth grade. And I have many stories of shame and embarrassment. Um, I had premarital sex in high school and in college, I was engulfed in pornography and sexual experiences. I was totally dis distant from the church. And then I became a Christian and met Maggie and I was 100% pure. Um, no, it's not, it's not, it's not true. <laughs> it's weird how the church teaches that. Um, no, I became a Christian, and with that I became someone who struggles. I became more aware of my sin, 
more desiring to follow Jesus in this important area, more aware of the patience and the grace of this redeeming God. And when Maggie and I dated, I came with my own sexual history, and so did she. And it was totally different than mine. I was sexually promiscuous up until our relationship, and she lived in a Christian fundamentalist bubble and hadn't done anything. And so it was a struggle early on in our dating life. My boundary was much different than hers. My place of conviction was much different than hers. And so I learned through the fellowship of friends and through the pastoral um, mentor, mentor that I had, I learned what it looked like to listen and to love and to respect her body and to pursue chastity. I learned this, this purpose in ab- abstaining from sexual behavior and the goodness and the beauty of it. And we did so with a lot of failure and with a lot of forgiveness and a lot of support from our friends and our church. And sex and marriage was not what we thought it was. It was really difficult. It created a lot of fights. It's full of insecurity and frustration and shame. We both had expectations and needs that were selfish. It created a lot of conflict. But God's brought our pasts into our marriage. And here's the thing. Um, One of the most primary basic claims of Christianity is that we believe that God is alive. Because he's alive, that means he's at work. And he's at work in our marriage, bringing redemption of two sinners who've been brought together by his grace. And we've been firsthand witnesses to this redemption in our lives, seeing these amazing and beautiful ways in our union with one another. The sex in marriage is a, is a wonderful, glorious thing. Um, that's where it belongs. Let me pray and take your questions. Um, God, we give you great thanks for your beautiful design that you um, gave your body to us. That we may find life and forgiveness and union with God pray for these men and women as they just struggle and they're ashamed and they're afraid and they're insecure as we all are and that you would meet them and comfort them with the delight that they are what they're so afraid of and ashamed is you look on with love promise to be their shield and their strength and their refuge would you protect them from the evil one I pray particularly that you would give these people courage to pursue one another, that you would give these people courage to pursue friends, that you would strengthen friendships that are there, that you would deepen them, that you'd give them more meaning, that they might begin to discuss these things. They would glorify you in their good bodies as they wait for that day, if it is your will, to express and enjoy the goodness of sex and marriage. Give them patience. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Here's what I do. I know that was long. I know some of you want to leave. Um, So I'm going to give us a two-minute break. You can go get water. You can type a question. You can leave. If you want to come back and be a part of the Q&A, you're welcome to. After the Q&A, we're going to then go over to Sharp Chapel, and we're going to uh, do Just Dance. So we're going to restart in about two minutes. Uh,